On March 28, 2017, Ivanka Trump's apparel company applied for 17 trademarks from the government of China. It was the day before Ms. Trump officially joined her father's White House staff as an unpaid advisor. Since then, many of these trademarks have been granted and registered by an arm of the Chinese government, seven of them just this month for items like housewares and cushions. All this while President Trump is involved in delicate negotiations with China over trade and security. Is there a connection? The president of Ivanka Trump's company said these trademarks were granted in the normal course of business, an effort, she says, to prevent third parties from capitalizing by marketing products with the Trump brand. But Washington watchdog groups aren't buying it. They say that these Chinese trademarks are just one more example of the corruption inherent in the Trump family's decision to maintain their international business ties while Donald Trump is president. We'll talk today with the chief of one of those watchdog groups, Norm Eisen, the former ethics advisor to President Obama, on today's edition of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. We've got a lot to talk about this week, a lot of news always on the Mueller front. We're still waiting for that uh, uh, interview, if it's ever going to take place. Um, uh, more news on uh, the what some of what uh, Mueller is looking at on the obstruction front, uh, the Times story about the uh, uh, his efforts, uh, continued efforts to get uh, Attorney General Sessions to reverse his recusal uh, on the Russia investigation. You know what I love about that story? So uh, S- Sessions has to fly down to Mar-a-Lago because he can't get Trump on the phone. He needs Trump to sign off on the immigration policy, and he and Trump won't return his phone calls. So his staff tell him, all right, get on a plane and fly down to Mar-a-Lago and you know, doorstep him. Um, and so once he finally gets an audience with the president, Trump just like berates him again about his decision to recuse himself. Um, and um, and then on Wednesday, uh, uh, Trump um, reacting to some some, I guess, positive remarks that uh, Trey Gowdy made on Fox News um, where Gowdy is agreeing with him in a sense that, well, you know, uh, maybe Sessions uh, should have, before he told the, told him that he was going to take the job, maybe should have told him that he might have to recuse himself because, after all, there are plenty of other good lawyers out there that he could have hired. And then Trump, he repeats that, and then and then Trump's Trump writes in his tweet, you know, I wish I had, as in I wish I had fired Sessions. So he's still yeah. saying that. It's just it's just kind of amazing. Sessions strikes me as our, our first abused attorney general, uh, sort of like an abused spouse. And uh, I don't know, I, I can foresee some kind of Justice Department conference on uh, 
<laughs> on spousal abuse and attorney general abuse. Um, but you know what I, I, I really want to focus on today, and we're going to do it with our first guest, our colleague Hunter Walker, is that uh, really fascinating uh, New York Times uh, documentary on the New York Times that uh, is airing on Showtime. I guess it's four parts. The first part aired uh, 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 last Sunday about the, the struggles and uh, tensions in trying to cover this White House, uh, which is unlike uh, uh, press coverage of any other White House for all the reasons that uh, uh, this is such a precedent-breaking, shattering uh, administration. Um, but Hunter um, plays a, uh, has a cameo role in this uh, in this documentary, uh, a great question he asks of Sean Spicer uh, early on in the early days of the administration. After, if you remember, Devin Nunes, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, had made a midnight run to the White House to gather evidence about the supposed unmasking by Obama administration officials of people in the Trump uh, orbit. Uh, and uh, Nunes was claiming, and the White House was claiming, I gather, that uh, uh, this was done by Nunes on his own. The White House played no role. And um, uh, Hunter challenges uh, then-Press Secretary uh, Sean Spicer on this. But isn't it abundantly clear that at least some White House officials had to be involved in him getting information here because they would need to help him access the complex? Um. I, I cannot get into who those individuals were. The thing is, it was a great question, and you, and you had to see Sean Spicer's face. It was this classic deer in the headlights. Uh, he just had no idea what to say, stammering, kind of looking away. And the great thing in this documentary that they showed it is you see they cut to the New York Times editors uh, who were watching this in the Washington Bureau – um, and they're just cracking up and rolling their eyes, and they realize, because uh, they had broken this story on Nunes, and at the time it was a big, important story, uh, they just realized that they had uh, Sean uh, Spicer and, and the White House dead to rights on this, and Hunter exposed that brilliantly. So let's uh, bring Hunter on. Yeah, how are you, Mike? Uh, great. And, uh, a great little, uh, cameo there in the Times, uh, Doc. Thanks. My, my phone was blowing up a little bit this weekend because I guess, uh, a lot of people were watching. I, I certainly wasn't expecting that. I think I texted you in real time. Yeah. Uh, and you were at the beach. You were unaware you had briefly become a media star. Yeah. I, I, I didn't get to watch it immediately because I, I was doing a little exile <laughs> on the beach this weekend. Um, well, there is no exile on this job of covering the uh, covering the Trump White House. What did you make of the doc, by the way, overall? Um, you know, I think it was pretty good. I think a lot of the enmity that we see towards the press comes from people who are not necessarily too familiar with the process and the work that goes into it. Um, so I do think that the documentary does expose how hard journalists are working. It it shows that, um, you know, there's not really agenda behind it and also that the sources are real, which challenges one of the president's big narratives. I would say, you know, the downside is that any time um, 
there's a movie about journalism or we participate in a documentary. It's easy to get a little self-important and grandiose with some of the like dramatic office footage and like, I'm sending the tweet. Is the tweet ready? Yes. Press publish. I mean, it, it gets a little kooky, but, um, you know, on, on balance, I do think it's pretty good. And, and, you know, this documentary movies like spotlight shows that, you know, however I might cringe as a reporter, I think the public does have a lot of interest in this type of content. For me, the most telling moment in that documentary was, uh, uh, I think it's Jeremy Peters is covering the CPAC, uh, uh, conference in uh, February 2017. I was there because I remember Trump is there. And when Trump uses the phrase enemy of the people to describe the press, and you can see Jeremy Peters does, he, it's a very small flinch like, wow, did I just hear what I heard? Uh, that was a phrase I don't think any of us ever expected to be uttered by a president talking about the people in our profession. It's something that sort of rings historically uh, along the lines of what we've heard from um, dangerous demagogues of the past uh, that um, uh, to be reminded of it was uh, was pretty striking for me. Yeah. And, and you know, and then you see how that tone and rhetoric and that view kind of reverberates across the land. So there is a, a scene later in the show when uh, one of the investigative reporters um, not working on the Russia story, I think is uh, uh, reporting on the administration um, kind of rescinding all these regulations. Eric, I can't remember his name, but he's out in uh, somewhere out in, in rural America and he goes to interview some farmer and the guy just, the first thing he says after he introduces himself, saying he's in the New York Times, the first thing the guy says is, I hate you, you know, and and he says, OK, and then just continues to ask his questions. I, You know, my guess is um, uh, that vitriol, that anger, the the trolling on Twitter, um, I'm not sure that it has a lot of impact on on reporters at the New York Times and the Washington Post and Yahoo News and, and elsewhere. Um, in, in some ways... Um, it it you know probably fires people up to continue doing the job as well as they can. What do you think, Hunter? You know, I, I don't think it has much impact on reporters. I mean, this is a profession where people have, you know, traditionally the saying is when, when the disaster strikes, we run towards it rather than away from it. I mean, people have gone to war zones and all sorts of worse situations than, you know, being called names. But I do think that, you know, as media, we tend to fall victim to a little bit of navel-gazing. Uh, part of that is we talk too much about Twitter. Um, and I think there are real things at play here um, that are very, very serious. And one story that really sticks out in my head, um, and I believe it was August of last year, but right before Charlottesville. So it got lost in the shuffle a little bit. But this was when the president went to Phoenix, Arizona for one of his um, sort of endless campaign rallies that he keeps doing. Um, and there were massive protests slash riots in the streets around the arena in downtown Phoenix that culminated with the police launching tear gas and other projectiles at the crowd. Um, and, you know, of course, anytime you're sitting there, I was I was there. This is one of the times covering Trump that I felt in most immediate physical danger. And it started well before the tear gas tear gas was flying because you had people showing up 
There were sort of militia groups who were armed doing their open carry thing. This included, by the way, at least one liberal militia group, the John Brown militia carrying um, assault rifles. There were these costumed alt-right groups like the Proud Boys um, that were showing up with wooden shields and helmets and then sort of the costume left-wing groups, uh, the Antifa. And all these people had showed up there to fight each other um, it was really a miracle nothing worse happened and they were all kept away from each other. And I remember thinking this was going into right, you know, right into Charlottesville. Like, like this, to me, this is not my concept of America, that we have these costumed political groups ready to fight in the streets. That's, that's things I've read about with like World War II and Europe. Um, and then we saw the violence in Charlottesville and this now seems to be a feature, not a bug of our politics. Yeah, you're raising a really important point because um, it's... Uh, the issue uh, in terms of presidential leadership um, is uh, this is a president um, who seems willing to give license uh, to that kind of uh, behavior and and rhetoric and and potentially uh, conduct. Um, and, you know, I'm, it's interesting you think about um, this is a moment where a lot of people are thinking about John McCain, uh, who's very ill and may not be uh, with us much longer. And there was the HBO movie that just came out and his memoir um, and um, and our own Holly Bailey wrote a uh, terrific piece about um, a, a moment um, not you know which has some echoes to the present time um, in the 2008 campaign when at Sailor, Sarah Palin uh, rallies uh, some of the sort of uglier side of American uh, politics came out when people started you know calling Obama a terrorist and an Arab and and I mean some really dark. Um, uh, stuff and you know McCain uh, stood up and said no we that's not the way we talk and he defended Obama and um, you know and and that was I think a really important uh, moment um, and you know I think it's what we would expect of our uh, politicians and public figures um, but um, Trump um, is very different and. Um, it you know it it uh, will we revert back to the, the the values that McCain exhibited or have we broken through um, broken across some you know red line and, and created some 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 really bad precedents I don't know what you think about that Mike um, I, listen I God knows where we're headed um, with this uh, with this president and administration. Uh, um, and you know, obviously, a lot is going to depend on how things go in the um, in the elections. But Hunter, what? Give me a sense of um, what it's like these days uh, inside the um, inside the press corps covering uh, the Trump White House. Uh, it seems that uh, Sarah Sanders is now so far um, uh, isolated herself from the rest from the press corps, uh, other than a few. Uh, uh, hardcore loyalists that um, these these press briefings seem just more and more divorced from reality, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I used to, and, and that clip we were talking about was from an earlier time. I, I used to go to the briefings all the time. Um, I, I go to them much less now um, in one part because there are so many less briefings. Um, and the briefings that we do have are... are um, seem to be so much shorter than before and also seem to have so much less real information. I mean, you know, there was that whole uproar over the fact that at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, the the 
comedian made fun of Sarah's reputation for lying. Um, but she does have that reputation. And, and, you know, it's a combo of, you know, maybe it's unfair to pin it all on her. But between the president and his outside legal team and his allies, the story shifts so often. There are those attempts to off- obfuscate like we saw with, you know, Spicer on that Nunez story that I questioned. Um, so, you know, the information that comes through at the briefing is bad. Um, there are less briefings and they're shorter. Um, so I think that, you know, there's this weird oppositional relationship between the press corps and, and the White House comms staff um, that is odd. I mean, this is my first I moved down to Washington to cover Trump. Um, so I don't really have a basis. But, you know, people should keep in mind that we all work in the same building, the White House press corps and the staff. There should be we should be colleagues in a certain way. I mean, obviously, the relationship is at its core adversarial. But, you know, there should be work that's getting done together, particularly, you know, policy rollouts, background conversations of what White House strategy is. And we we should be able to do this with a cordiality. Um, And Hunter, um, you know, but in, in, in another way. This president actually is more transparent than previous presidents. We've had. We were talking well, about this before the show that um, he doesn't give a lot of formal press conferences. Uh, the 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 daily briefing has become you know a, a joke in a lot of ways. Uh, but Trump kind of is more spontaneous than a lot of other presidents. He'll do these pool sprays where all of a sudden he'll start you know saying things, the, the kinds of things that presidents typically don't say. Um, you know, sometimes they turn out to be lies. Other times they turn out to be pretty revealing in ways that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, uh, have experience with a Barack Obama or a George W. Bush. So, yeah, I mean, let me let me break down for a second what Trump does and what he doesn't do. Um, one of my big pet peeves is that um, Trump held, has hold, held one formal solo press conference as president. I believe it was February 2017. Um and it's traditional for the president to do that at, at, at least at an annual basis. If you remember Obama, um, before he would go on his vacations to Hawaii, used to do that big year-end briefing. Um, even, you know, even Putin has an annual year-end press conference. So I think Putin may be ahead of Trump in giving <laughs> press conferences since uh, over the last uh, year and a half. Absolutely. And, and, you know, talking about that polarized environment that we're in, when, whenever I make this point, I get Trump supporters yelling at me on Twitter. But he has press conferences. And, and they're right in a sense. What he does is these what are called two-by-twos, where he appears alongside a foreign leader um, And what happens at those is that each leader picks two members of the press corps that they take a question from. But what we've seen is that Trump often picks conservative outlets where he gets these questions at two by two. So it's really not the same thing as a full press conference where he faces his press corps and gets a wide and surprising range of questions. Um, They're also cutting down on the briefing. But what you were alluding to, um, you know, I recently was talking to Martha Kumar, who's one of the – foremost, really, scholars of presidential procedure. And she keeps stats on everything and works with us in the White House basement. And I was saying, you know, what do you think about this press conference issue? And she said, look, in one sense, Trump is way more transparent than other presidents. He has not done network interviews. He's not done press conferences at the rate of others. But these informal sprays where the pool's brought into the Oval or the cabinet room um, are very unusual, and he's done he's done them at a rate that his predecessors have never before. And so, because you never know, and you never know what he's going to say, because he doesn't exercise a lot of discipline. And sometimes you get 
like the last thing that entered his mind. Yeah, I mean, what what will happen is, and I, I've been pulled for this on a couple occasions, you'll get brought into somewhere like the Oval or the Cabinet Room, and Trump will just do this freewheeling thing where if he's in the mood, he'll take questions for 30 or 40 minutes. And, yeah. And what, what, what's interesting, you know, what's good about that is you get the president talking to reporters for 30 or 40 minutes. I never would want to speak out against that. I think that kind of transparency is great. What's bad about it is it's a more limited press corps. And also in a press conference, if I ask you a question, you know, in full view of the cameras and you ignore it and it was my turn to ask a question, you don't look good. Whereas in these settings, you know, we're often ushered out of the room when the president is done. You know, so so we'll get answers to some things, but not to others. And it is a little more controlled than it might seem. Well, the other thing we know about Trump, and we saw this in the Times movie in The Fourth Estate, is he's also willing to call up a beat reporter and go off the record. Um, And I had an old boss, Meg Greenfield, who was the editorial page editor of The Washington Post, who used to say in Washington, the real record is off the record. Um, And um, I don't know if he's still doing that, but I thought that was striking that he was calling up reporters and and speaking off the record. It's sort of interesting. Well, he he calls up Maggie Haberman, who he's, of course, known for years because she covered him in in New York. Uh, And uh, this is the same Maggie Haberman. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Hunter, didn't he tweet, uh, I barely know her? Or, uh, so, yeah, a I, while back. You know, yeah. when we talk about um, the vitriol being directed at reporters and the climate and everything, one particularly um, alarming thing that the president does is he often will direct the attention of his massive, you know, seven figure strong follower base at a specific reporter. If either they've made a small mistake or he doesn't like a story they did. Um, Two examples of this off the top of my head. He did this to Maggie where he, you know, even though he has this well-known and and documented in this show reputation for calling her, he claimed she has no sources and he hardly knows her. He did this when Dave Weigel once, you know, um, tweeted a, a... of an incorrect photo to imply that Trump had a had a smaller crowd. Dave corrected this, uh, Dave of the Washington Post, pretty quickly, but it didn't stop the president from airing him out um, on Twitter. And, you know, this is really disturbing. I mean, I you know, this is the kind of thing that melts down your phone. You just get an avalanche of people coming at you, and and you don't know, is, is one of them going to be crazy enough to, to actually do something, to actually hurt somebody? So, Hunter, in, in the same way... That maybe not in the same way, but similar way that uh, Trump shatters norms. He's also kind of um, pushed uh, reporters to break norms in the way uh, they talk. They they ask him questions, and you know it's a little more um, art than science. And and you've actually um, uh, kind of figured out some interesting ways to get him to talk uh, to sort of reveal certain sides of him that you might not otherwise see. And I'm thinking of one particular moment during the campaign, actually where he held a big conference on veterans' issues. Well, it was, you know, it was a conference on purported well, his, donations that he'd made right, to Right, controversy charities. over whether yeah. he'd actually made these contributions to, veteran, to, uh, to veterans. Um, and uh, we, I remember we were up in, the, in our newsroom and our uh, managing editor, Colin Campbell, uh, we were kind of brainstorming questions that you might ask him. And Colin said, well, why don't you ask him about something that's going on right now that nobody else is asking about? And, and it was... Harambe, the gorilla who had um, kind of uh, taken a three-year-old boy, a very cute little three-year-old boy prisoner in the uh, was in in the uh, Cincinnati Zoo, and I remember thinking at the time, okay, well, this is a question 
completely out of left field. Uh, this is a story that was going viral. The whole country was paying attention to this drama. What was going to happen to this little boy? Uh, Trump was a, you know, a, a made-for-television reality TV president. You know, it might be interesting to see how we, how we reacted. And so we sent word to you, ask about Harambe. The biggest stories from this weekend was the situation at the Cincinnati Zoo. And animal activists are outraged that they killed this gorilla who was holding the four-year-old boy. How do you feel about it? I, I think it's a very tough call. It was amazing because there were moments with the gorilla, the way he held that child. It was almost like a mother holding a baby, looked so beautiful and calm. And there were moments where it looked pretty dangerous. I don't think they had a choice. I mean, probably they didn't have a choice. You have a child, a young child is at stake. And, uh, you know, it's too bad there wasn't another way. I, I thought it was so beautiful to watch that, you know, powerful, almost 500-pound gorilla, the way he dealt with that little boy. But it just takes one second. It's one second. It's not like it takes place over. Well, he's going to do it in 30 seconds from now. It just takes one little flick of his finger. And I will tell you, they probably had no choice. I will tell you. <laughs> I thought. And tell us he did. <laughs> tell us he did. It probably. Reminds me, reminds me of my, the, my favorite last line of a movie. I'll give you the last line. Anybody tell me uh, if, if you can. Uh, if you know the movie, it was beauty killed the beast. It's the last line of King Kong. King Kong, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hunter got Twitter shamed on uh, on online um, by a lot of self righteous reporters uh, who thought uh, it was not. Well, a... One suggested I should be shot. So it's <laughs> it's not only Trump that um, it's not only Trump that. Uh, uh, you know, maybe hints at violence towards reporters. That was a reporter suggested I should be shot for that. But question. I thought it was a fascinating uh, exchange and answer. And um, clearly it revealed that, um, you know, he pays attention uh, to, you know, viral videos <laughs> and anything that's getting like major traction on social media. Uh, and maybe it showed a good political touch that he could engage on a subject uh, with real emotional resonance that, you know, tens and tens of millions of Americans were obsessing on. Um, and nuance. And, and yeah. And I don't know. I just sometimes I think uh, reporters should ask questions that are a little bit uh, un, un, unexpected to see what kind of response they get. I don't remember the question I wanted to ask. It was something else, something very serious and weighty, I assure all our listeners. Um, and and you really and I guarantee push, no one will remember will I, remember the answer to that. I don't even remember my question. And you pushed me to do this. I did get it uh, absolutely pilloried. You know, as we were saying, there's just massive Twitter mobs on both sides, and no one was happy with this question. Um, but you know, I I really think in the end, and uh, you know, you're my boss. I but I'm not just saying this. You you were right. It was a great question. Um, because first off, anytime you get a presidential candidate waxing for like several minutes about like motherhood and beauty and the power of animals. I mean, this is like deeply psychologically strange stuff. And then also, as, as you alluded to, and others have pointed this out, um, you know, Trump often doesn't seem to be that informed when he's discussing matters of policy and procedure. But in this you instance, he, he had watched that video of the gorilla. He was clearly very well versed in this sort of viral pop culture content um, in a way that I think was very revealing. For me, when I approach him in general, 
Um, you know, I'm not the New York Times. Um, I don't tend to get the first question at the briefing. Um, I tend to have to sort of come with something that no one else is covering. So I do try to do that. You know, whatever the issue of the day is, I try to sort of pick a second issue that might not be getting enough attention. And there's value in that because often those are the questions that, uh, you know, maybe he hasn't been briefed on. Um, or hasn't thought about. And so you get a more authentic, more genuine uh, response. Yeah. And I, I also like to um, I think a big thing with Trump um, to, to, that I've had some success with is to ask him how far he'd go. So like during the campaign, the big story that we had was, um, you know, when I asked him if sort of his Muslim ban proposal would require registering immigrants and, uh, you know, the, the infamous Muslim database. And sort of asking him conceptually about where something would go yielded, you know, the idea that he was kind of open to this registry, which was a pretty big deal. Um, also, I, I, one that I've loved to do is to kind of ask him to grade himself because his, his ego is such that that always gets interesting. So, like, um, when he was with the governor of Puerto Rico, I was in the Oval Office for one of those marathon sprays. And I said, how would you rate your response to this hurricane where, you know— out 80% of the island didn't have power for an extended period, and he gave himself a 10, which was sort of a mini controversy. So I, I like to get more outside of the box and conceptual when I question Trump. But then one thing we have to do, which again, you know, gets the Twitter mobs mad, is part of making those sprays happen is you have to engage him. He can very easily just kick us out, A, when he gets a question he doesn't like, or B, right off the bat. Um, so you know, and a, a lot of reporters have discussed this. I guess I'm sort of revealing a dirty secret of the press corps. We'll tend to throw him something a little soft at the top of a spray just to get him going. So, like, for example, um, in the cabinet room, when he revealed that those North Korean detainees were coming back, I asked him if he thought he deserved the Nobel Prize. And, of course, he was really, really glad to wax philosophical about that for a while. Um, but then when I followed that up with asking him about a suggestion he'd made earlier that he wanted to ban press from the White House, we got the we got the rollout, which comes with the aides saying the infamous thank you press, and then we're gone. Well, you're giving away your tradecraft right here on <laughs> Skullduggery. I hope the president listens to Skullduggery, but maybe he didn't hear that. So, right. I will right. tell well, you, Hunter. Thanks for uh, joining us. Um, uh, great insights, and we will have you back again. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, man. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. And we are joined now by uh, Norm Eisen, uh, chair of the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington uh, and the former ethics advisor to um, President Obama, uh, who just co-wrote a uh, Fascinating piece on Yahoo News uh, called Trump has given us the ultimate Chinese import, American princelings. Uh, welcome to Skullduggery, Norm. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Danny. Um, so in this piece, you identify uh, the uh, American princelings as uh, Jared Kushner, Eric uh, Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump uh Explain what you were trying to communicate here. In uh, corruption uh, around the world, um, the way that you get to the people in power, typically uh, in uh, corrupt uh, regimes that America has uh, always looked down on as a 
rule of law system and a leading democracy. The way you get to the people in power is through their family members. Now, the Chinese have elevated this to an art, so much so that they talk about the princelings, uh, the uh, uh, children, family members of the uh, Communist Party uh, officials, the communist royalty. For the first time in America, we now have princelings because of the uh, corruption that Donald Trump and his family have brought to the government. And they are uh, his uh, three children and his son-in-law. So these uh, Don Jr., Eric, Ivanka, and Jared are a vehicle to influence uh, the president, um, of course, uh, two of them serve in government, Jared and Ivanka, influence them and shape American policy. That is what we mean. So the, the, the most recent example of this uh, is uh, just this month, we learned that Ivanka Trump has uh, seven trademarks approved by the Chinese government for various uh, apparel uh, that she markets, uh, cushions and uh, – and other material, uh, but um, and and this comes, of course, at a time that the uh, president is involved in some uh, very intense negotiations with China uh, over trade matters, tariffs, and of course <clears throat> North Korea. But are you suggesting here that there's a connection between the approval of these trademarks for Ivanka Trump's company and um, the negotiations between? the White House and uh, China over other matters? Do you have any evidence that there's a connection? The Chinese certainly in granting Ivanka her trademarks or the other big uh, uh, apparent uh, conflict, the $500 million in financing for a Trump-connected Indonesian uh, development uh, provided by a Chinese state-owned company. The Chinese are a one-party state, Isakoff. Do you really believe that these officials are not aware that they're giving these benefits to Trump family members and that they don't intend to shape American policy? Of course they do. Now, well, <clears throat> uh, 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 that's not to say that I have a proof that I have the smoking gun. For example... Uh, that they were uh, demanded uh, by the Trumps in exchange, that there was an explicit quid pro quo. But then on the other hand, you do have these very, there's, I would say, there's some evidence, not conclusive evidence, but there's enough evidence to, to raise the question. Look at the proximity. That's one thing that prosecutors and defense lawyers often look at to establish evidence in the case. Look at the proximity of um, uh, all of this to Trump's bizarre uh, ZTE, the huge uh, Chinese uh, telecommunications um, entity, uh, which uh, was sanctioned by the United States, uh, sanctioned again for violating their agreement to deal with the first sanctions, bipartisan support, they're a threat to American national security. Trump says, well, we're going to save ZTE. That happens around the same time as this $500 million financing and these trademarks to Ivanka. It is asking a lot for me to say, oh, it's just a coincidence. But do I have the conclusive proof? Not yet. 
I think we may get it, but not yet. Well, uh, and Trump did that in a tweet, I think. He just said he was going to – he wanted to save ZTE. And it runs, of course, completely counter uh, to everything he was saying about China during the campaign um, and actually during most of his career in public life, such as it was, which is that China is stealing our jobs um, and we need to save – American businesses and American jobs. So uh, it just seemed sort of strange that he would kind of turn that around. Um, But I think with Trump, I mean, you tell me if this is right. Uh, His business um, over the course of many decades of business opportunities were drying up in the United States and they were kind of increasing their global footprint and actually not doing that much business in, you know, Western Europe and highly developed economies, but actually in uh, developing countries, emerging you know countries, and, and in these places where the connections between uh, b- private businesses and, um, and governments, in most cases, uh, dicta- dictatorships or ruling royal families, I mean, there's just, they're totally in- intertwined. So the, the other example that I think you mentioned in your Yahoo News piece is uh, Jared Kushner's uh, the Kushner family's flagship property, six six Fifth Avenue, and there's some news there that I think concerns you as well. Tell us about that. Well, that's six 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 Fifth. The Jared led his family uh, into a disastrous purchase of this property. They overpaid. Uh, for the property. Uh, It's now, its value is underwater. They have a big balloon payment coming due. Um, And the Kushner family uh, doesn't know what to do about this. Uh, They're um, now on, uh, it looks like they're uh, on the verge uh, of getting, um, uh, of getting Middle East financing. For the property now, why does that why does that matter? And uh, in, in fairness uh, uh, to Jared, he's uh, somewhat uh, uh, stepped away from it. But why does it matter? He, the thing he hasn't stepped away from is Middle East policy issues, and he's making decisions uh, about Qatar, about the UAE, about Saudi Arabia, uh, momentous decisions, flip flopping. Uh, uh, the Trump administration uh, seems to be gravitating in ways around these issues that track with the financial investments or prospective financial investments uh, that are targeting the Kushner family. So again, it's the same pattern as the Chinese money. You wonder, is is our policy being influenced on these in- incredibly intricate Middle Eastern issues um, uh, where uh, uh, the Qataris are uh, are being squeezed by their neighbors. We shouldn't have to ask if that policy is being framed by the economic interests. And there are timing and other factors that lead you to believe, hey, there's evidence here that uh, demands further scrutiny. I'd be remiss, Danny, if I didn't also mention uh, when you talk about the Trump family pattern, you also have to look at Russia because they're the other – as you look at the big players here, there's China, there's India, there's the Middle East, 
there's the Philippines, and there's Russia. And with princelings Don Jr. and Eric and Trump himself, there's, a, again, evidence of a lot of Russian money that has come into their enterprises when other financing sources dried up. So okay, okay. all the hot spots. Okay, Eisen, let me, uh, let me uh, challenge you a little bit on some of what you've said here. You said, we've never seen anything like this. Now, um, I've been around Washington for a while, as have you. Uh, I remember Billy Carter registering as an agent of the Libyan government. I remember uh, uh, Tony Rodham and you, Rodham, the brothers of Hillary Clinton, getting involved in a $118 million uh, hazelnut scheme with a political boss in Georgia who was a rival to the then U.S.-backed president of Georgia. And in the administration in which you served, surely you remember uh, Burisma Holdings, the Ukrainian gas company owned by a uh, oligarch tied to Yanukovych, with whom Hunter Biden uh, joined as a member of the board of directors while his father, the vice president, was flying back and forth to Ukraine trying to work out a political settlement there. Was Hunter Biden a princeling? Um, The um, examples that you give, both with respect to Hunter Biden, the Rodham boys, uh, Billy Carter, that's 24 hours in the life of the Trump administration, Mike. Right. Look at the flow of these no, no. deals I, I as get you your go point around about the world. The That's my point. We've my point is, of right. course you've seen isolated episodes. I might quibble with you about the details of some of those examples. My point is a different one. And by the way, in each of those cases there were strong and vociferous uh, defenses that were made. Uh, the same as here. But do you here. see a but parallel sh- between it, what the, the Trump children are doing point, and what the family members of past presidents Ed, have engaged in in overseas business? The sheer volume. At some point, the uh, quantitative becomes qualitative. And the sheer volume, the magnitude of the dollars, the direct timing connection, as we've pointed out, uh, to critical decisions of foreign policy, the fact that these are happening in the hottest of the hot spots around the world. Look at the China situation that we wrote about on Yahoo News. Right. You you have major U.S. trade negotiations, uh, 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 which, by the way, this week now we're back on a trade war footing. Um, these are going to have impacts on hundreds of thousands, maybe million, millions of American jobs. You have Uh, The North Korea situation, which impacts American lives. I mean, last year we were on a possible uh, nuclear war footing. People were talking seriously about nuclear war. And if these negotiations go bad, which we require China for, we may be on that footing again. So it's American blood and treasure at stake. And that's happening over and over and over again in every hot spot in the world. So Norm- And it's connected. Here's the last thing. I want to make one last point. It's connected to the president's pocketbook. Right. Right. Because the president refused to let go of his businesses. So every one of these examples, uh, almost everyone, directly hits the president's pocketbook. That's so, also different and unique. So the fundamental concern here is that uh, policies in the United States' interest, this is American national and economic security, 
are will be, could be, are being subverted by the financial, personal interests of 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 our elected leaders who and their children who have all of these connections. But my question is, well, what what do we what can you do about it? I mean, other than write a whole bunch of op eds, and we're glad that you are <laughs> grace our pages, uh, our our virtual pages. I mean. Uh, you know, uh, do, do you have to have, uh, you know, you can say, hey, uh, 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 the, you know, the Trump children and, and, and um, uh, Jared Kushner should uh, divest all, all of their holdings, but they haven't done that. I guess they've done a little bit of that, but they haven't really done that. Trump hasn't really done it. Um, are, are our conflict of interest – has yeah. not. Are, are our yeah. conflict of interest laws not strong enough to deal with this? I mean at the end of the day, you know, what do you do? Well, um, I do believe there's going to be accountability for this. Um, so we know um, that uh, special counsel Robert Mueller is looking uh, at, at some of the connected uh, financial – Issues. There's wait, wait, what, what in particular that. are you referring I, to there? I, I, there, there has been reporting uh, that uh, Mueller has uh, made inquiries uh, about Russia-related uh, subjects, so uh, financial subjects. So we'll see if it turns out to be true. Not, he, not clear if it's connected to the, the president's ch- own uh, business. Uh, yeah, that's but, true, but right, you know, right. the two of you know full well the yeah. limits of public reporting. In fact, mm-hmm. I doubt I could be podcasting with two journalists who know better. Uh, the uh, strengths and weaknesses of public reporting on pending government investigations. There are some indications out there. We'll see if it's true or not. Number two, the Michael Cohen investigation in the Southern District of New York. There, we know Cohen was representing the president on all of the global deals that Isakoff was asking me about for years. And not just the president. He was traveling with the princelings to do these deals. And uh, uh, today, another million pieces of evidence was were turned over by the special master, uh, former Judge Barbara Jones, to the government. So there's a vast trove of information. It may well include this. So there's potential accountability there. That's the criminal process. Civil. Yeah. You've uh, also. Yeah. I want to get to that because you've got a lawsuit. Yes. That's multiple. challenging uh, the president's <laughs> business interests on as a violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Uh, bring us up to date on where that stands. Is so it- <clears throat> the um, the emoluments um, clause, foreign emoluments clause, the Constitution, the framers felt so strongly that a president should not be able to do exactly what Donald Trump Uh, And the princelings are doing travel around the world and hoover up huge amounts of cash and other things of value like trademarks from foreign governments. They put it in the Constitution and they call these things of value emoluments. Uh, The president is disdaining this constitutional limitation on foreign swag. Congress is of his own party and supine. So we've gone to court uh, around the country and crew, my organization, Watchdog Group, represents the uh, co-counsels with the Maryland and D.C. AGs to represent those jurisdictions. We have a case in Maryland. The AGs, the state and the District of Columbia, were granted standing. So they overcame the first hurdle. 
Uh, and now we're having a hearing in June on the scope of the Emoluments Clause, and we're confident that the judge is going to allow us to determine if the president's behavior, this lawsuit is focused on the Trump Hotel, but many of these same regimes are passing through the Trump Hotel. Right. The judge is going to allow us to, uh, we believe, the judge will permit us to take discovery. We have another case in New York on appeal to the Second Circuit raising the same issues. Over 200 members of Congress have filed the lawsuit. That's pending here in D.C. So I think there's going to be some uh, accountability through the civil system as well. Um, do you, do you the, see this? Uh, Let me ask. Hey, hold on. Do you, uh, do you, uh, do you see this Chinese uh, ZTE case as being potentially a viol- violation of the Emoluments Clause because – I guess, as I understand it, the Chinese give what uh, they give them uh, five hundred million dollars to the Indonesian developers to build uh, to build this uh, uh, theme park, and of course, the uh, you know the uh, Trump company is heavily invested in this theme park, um, so that benefits uh, Trump. Is is that a viol- potentially a violation of the Emoluments Clause? Yeah, when you say theme park, it's a whole enormous development with, with Trump hotels, aspects. right, or Trump Trump that, properties. And the developers, the principal developers, have described in one of their uh, promotional sets of promotional materials they're partnering with the Trumps, and we know that President Trump has maintained his financial interests in uh, the Trump enterprises. So yes, that's my view. Is that's cash that goes directly. Uh, uh, to the benefit of Donald Trump, that is an emolument. Um, you know, it's it, the challenge in um, suing Donald Trump is you've got to constantly. He 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 becomes so increasingly brazen. You have to constantly be developing new mm-hmm. litigation. But without saying more, let me say that I do believe that that transaction will come in issue in one court or another. Uh, let me just – I just want to be clear on one thing. You you referred to lawsuit. You said we. Now, as I understand it, the lawsuit in Maryland uh, was brought by the attorneys general of Maryland and the District of Columbia. What's your role in that lawsuit? I am co-counsel and crew my organization and we have an all-star litigation team uh, the Gupta Wessler Appellate Boutique here in DC the Cohen Milstein uh the Behemoth uh, Plaintiffs Firm crew uh, and others are co-counsel and the, Justice and the AGs lead the way the Justice Department uh is defending this lawsuit is does the president have his own attorneys in this case? It, it, this is a very interesting case because, Mike, one of the fascinating things, this is the first time in American history, almost a quarter of a millennium of the life of our country, that a president has been brazen enough to openly take emoluments. Ronald Reagan sought a legal opinion on whether he could even accept his state pension because there's a domestic emoluments clause too. You can't take from foreign governments. You can't take from the states. Uh, No president has dared to do it. It's all litigation of first impression. In the Maryland case, we're not only suing the president officially, and DOJ has appeared to defend him, we're suing him in his personal capacity too, in case he tries to say, oh, you know, I'm not taking these emoluments in my presidential capacity. I'm taking them personally. I assume assume Michael Cohen is not representing him (laughs) in this matter. We're not lucky enough to have Mm -hmm. Michael Cohen as uh, opposing counsel in this matter. Uh, The president has outside counsel that's representing him. 
uh, uh, in uh, in this in this okay, in look. his personal capacity. Right. DOJ represent him, represents him in as an official capacity. Okay, look, this is a lawsuit. It's obviously going to be appealed. Whatever Judge Massetti, who is the uh, judge of record in the, in in your case, rules, uh, we're a long way from getting resolution, uh, and probably uh, uh, well after Donald Trump's uh, first term of office is up. Um, if the Democrats get back control of the House uh, in, in November, uh, in your view, would this be grounds for an article of impeachment against the president? Uh, first of all, I think you're being too pessimistic about the timetable for the case. Uh, Judge Massetti uh, and the litigants have moved very, very briskly. It's accelerated. We had very rapid briefing on the motion to dismiss that's almost concluded as the president in his personal capacity. Uh, we're having our second hearing in June. Um, and I we believe we can, because the legal issues are a laydowns, uh, do some discovery and and bring it to fruition rapidly, certainly more rapidly, even with the possibility of appeals, than that timetable. But, but uh, Norm, secondly, isn't this... all right, go ahead, and I'll follow up. To to answer uh, Mike on uh, Congress, I think it's important. Should the Democrats be successful, uh, that they exhibit uh, a sense of uh, the same sense of uh, fairness that has been so woefully lacking on the part of the majority in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, it's been somewhat of a different story. Um, uh, uh, We've seen a a true bipartisan inquiry in the Senate Intelligence Committee, the opposite of what's happened in House Intelligence. But I'm not hearing an answer to my question. Uh, The answer is that it's too soon to to, uh, talk about such things. They're going to need to do a review of the emoluments questions uh, in the House of Representatives. They're litigating the issue in Congress. They care about it. They're going to need to do a review. They're going to need to do a fact-finding. I'm not even in discovery yet. So uh, I think it's premature. uh, But just getting back to the the courts uh, for a second and the the litigation there, I I mean, as I understand, this is a case of first impression. This has never actually been legally tested in the courts. Um, And you have two judges anyway who have uh, disagreed. Isn't this a case that – I mean, I could imagine it – there being a conflict in the circuits, not to be too legalistic here, and then it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. That takes a long time. It's a very conservative court. So it's still a tough uh, road ahead in in terms of the the litigation, isn't it? Well, um, if you look at other constitutional questions of first impression like Muslim ban – uh, the timetable on that uh, it's uh, 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 is well within the president's uh, first term. We're going to get some kind of preliminary answer on that in June. Mm-hmm. So um, I think in terms of timing, uh, it's still feasible. The you know the wheels of justice uh, grind uh, uh, slow but fine, and I do think we can. If there's a circuit split, we can uh, resolve things reasonably expeditiously. It's possible. Um, now, you are the, uh, the the as we mentioned before, the chair of CREW, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which for many years had a reputation as a bipartisan 
ethics watchdog. Then a number of years ago, you were taken over by David Brock, who is a uh, intense partisan. He ran a super PAC uh, that openly uh, aligned with Hillary Clinton, coordinated with Hillary Clinton during the uh, presidential campaign. Uh, what role does David Brock play in uh, crew and in deciding what cases you're going to get involved in and what complaints you're going to file? Uh, none whatsoever. Uh, when I came back, of course, I rotated out of crew. I uh, was serving in government. Uh, when I came back on uh, the board of crew, um, uh, David uh, left the board and um, he was replaced uh, by a rock-ribbed uh, uh, longtime conservative, Richard Painter. Uh, Painter uh, uh, and I uh, have re- restored crew to its firm bipartisan uh, roots. We have a number of other uh, mem- board members who are Republican. Uh, Painter is a little uh, fed up uh, with his own party <laughs> at the moment. Uh, as he's made clear in multiple <laughs> TV appearances. Exited, he's exited. Yep. He's exited the board. Um, I will he's tell you. He's left your board. He's left the board. Uh, he's entered the, he's running for Senate in, uh, in Minnesota. Uh, he's entered the Democratic primary. Uh, and of course, he had to leave the board uh, uh, when he did that. He's only done that uh, because, uh, as he said, uh, he's so alienated. His own party has been captured by the the pro-Trump forces of unreason. But uh, because we, whatever your partisan bent, if you're running for office, you got to get off our board. Uh, Painter is uh, Painter is I, off the board, but we go. We're back to Cruz. I never even I never mm-hmm. talk to or see Brock. What's the last Democrat you've chastised? Uh, well, uh, we I can tell you that when I go and talk to groups on the Hill, that I get I get chastised by some of the Democrats we've gone mm-hmm. after over the years. Uh, we we the first thing that Painter and I did when we came on the board was to challenge a Democratic super PAC in uh, Florida that was hiding its money. We've gone after dark money in both parties, and uh, we we hit Democrats on both sides. We're very severe, for example, on uh, Senator Menendez in the in the wake should, of should, uh, recent events. Should Menendez be running for reelection? Uh, well, we we don't comment since you've got me in my nonprofit guys. We don't comment on whether people should or should not run for re-election. But you concur in what the Senate ethics in the Senate ethics committee's rebuke of uh, Senator Crew Mendes. has taken a crew has taken a very all right. Tough, okay, uh, I'm now position. gonna I'm now gonna free you from this classic. Yes, and Kelsey uh, is Issa Kelsey is standing okay. here frantically. Issa Coffee and grilling. Oh, he um, was pretty <laughs> by Issa. Off standards, but, uh, he was pretty gentle ne- on next that. time. Yeah. Next time, when you come back to Skullduggery, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do it live from the Trump International Hotel. Let's do it, Just boys. I doubt we'll make it more than five minutes into our live podcast before security shows All us right. off the premises. Tell, I tell love the challenge. Tell Kelsey. Tell Kelsey she's got. Uh, she's got to wait two more minutes because I. I'm okay, gonna let two you. Two more minutes. I'm Kelsey, gonna let you two plug. Plug your your, oh, your yeah, new book, book that's coming out. This is the other side of Norm Eisen's uh, profile, the literary side. So you have, first of all, you served under Obama as uh, ambassador to the Czech Republic. 
Um, and you have a new book coming out called the uh, the Last Palace, and it's based on the last the last palace, the last right? palace, and it's based on the house, the grand house that you lived in in Prague with your family called the. Pechek Villa? Uh, Villa Pechek. The Villa Pechek. The Villa Pechek, which Pechek. was dubbed the last palace built in Europe by John Updike when he visited the place. You know, Danny and Mike, uh, uh, when uh, I reported for duty in uh, Prague as our U.S. ambassador there to show up in this gorgeous house, one of the most beautiful owned by the United States anywhere in the world, I was shocked to discover uh, uh, under a uh, an antique uh, table, a swastika branded beneath the table, and uh, my uh, 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 surprise at finding that propelled me uh, to investigate the history of that house, and it turned out to be the history of the past century in Europe because I discovered the optimistic Jewish billionaire who built the house. Immediately after World War One, as a tribute uh, to the uh, Wilsonian idea of Western democracy, only to have his faith in the West crushed by the rise of fascism and the onset of the Depression. And he was replaced by a, uh, a cultured, complicated German general. The Germans occupied Prague. Uh, including that house, um, and the general was transformed by living there until in the last days of the war, he took on the SS to save that house in Prague itself from destruction. And he was replaced by a an American Cold Warrior uh, who uh, attempted uh, to rescue both the palace and Czechoslovakia from communist control. He succeeded with the house and he failed with the country. And then uh, in 1968, I write about the movie star who showed up to see the Prague Spring, the thaw, the famous thaw of communism, only instead she got the Soviet bloc tanks coming through the streets. And she vowed, she says, I'm going to come back to this house and I'm going to be return as U.S. ambassador to help end communism. And that's just what Shirley Temple Black did <laughs> in 1989. And I write about those four characters because they tell the story of the past century. But I add a fifth person, and that is a Czechoslovak Jewish woman. If the guy who built the house was the rich, richest Czech Jew, this woman was the poorest, born in a tiny shtetl, a tiny Jewish village of Czechoslovakia, the same year ground was broken on the palace. And her experiences, the Holocaust, surviving that, communism, escaping communism, she came to the United States and she sent her son back to Prague to live as U.S. ambassador in that same palace and to fight the contemporary Putin-led rise of illiberalism in Europe. And she was his best advisor in doing that. And that's the end of the book is talking about this big cycle recurring. Is she, is she still with us? Uh, she, that, of course, is my mother, yeah. Frida Eisen. She passed, uh, she passed uh, after I'd been on the job a little over a year. 
while she was living, she understood what was going on and she helped me fight for our democracy. So, of course, now all this stuff is what you two are worrying about and reporting out on the podcast because this book is really not just I love telling the lives of the characters, but it brings to life a big cycle of liberalism versus illiberalism in Europe happens again and again and again following American overconfidence and withdrawal. Now that storm of illiberalism led by Putin has crashed down on American shores in sounds, the form of the sounds interference like, with the sounds election. Like an, it sounds like an amazing book. I, Norm, I always thought— <laughs> I, I think I there's always, a movie deal in yeah, the future. I, I, always, <laughs> I always knew we shared a bit of heritage. I thought it was the, the 90s when we were running around uh, D.C. trying to date women— um, together, <laughs> uh, it turns out. Uh, but it's a whole other show. My, it yeah, is yeah. My, sometimes uh, the same women. My mother uh, also was a, a Holocaust survivor from Czechoslovakia and spent uh, some of the years after the war um, running around Prague. I'm so, I'm sure she saw that house, um, and uh, I'm gonna make sure that I get her a signed copy of your book when it comes out. One Indeed. last thing I got to say here. Because we know yes. you're a crusade, you know, we talked about you as a crusading lawyer. And I read uh, that somehow you were actually the inspiration for the uh, lawyer in Wes Anderson's Budapest Hotel, Deputy Kovacs. Is that true? Yes. All right. Uh, Just quickly is, say how that is, happened and then we're, we're all off the air. It is true. It is true. And I'm going to give you guys a world exclusive on the pod. I'm going to reveal my appearance uh, in his uh, new movie, Isle of Dogs, too. <laughs> so I'll tag that on. What kind of a dog uh, are you? Wes, I, uh, Wes came to, you know, when you're ambassador, you get, uh, uh, you, you get to meet a lot of very interesting people. And uh, Wes Anderson came to Prague and a common friend connected us. And I showed him around Prague and I told him my stories. And uh, it turns out the reason he was there was to do research for a new movie. And that movie became the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I was very surprised when I got a call maybe nine months later from Wes. He says, I'm sending Jeff Goldblum <laughs> to uh, <Yeah>. to Prague. <laughs> I say, why is that? He says, because he's playing you in the movie. He's the ethics czar of our movie. And Jeff came and... Both Wes and Jeff have become very good friends, and uh, Je- he came, he wore my—he's he's a method actor. He says, may I put on one of your suit jackets, and I loaned him a suit coat to wear, and he, he monitored me for a 24-hour period, stayed with me to, uh, uh, to, to absorb the role, and then I visited the set, and— so um, it was a super fun thing for me, and you'll see me there in the uh, – if you look at the very end where they do the acknowledgments, and they were kind enough to invite me to the movie premiere, and it was so, so fun. I, and you'll see me in Isle of Dogs too because at the very end of the movie, there's screenshots of how the characters become government officials, and they identify one of the government officials – Ethics czar well, shows but, up on the screen. I love it because before uh, Jeff Goldblum, 
Blum was playing ethics czars. He became famous uh, playing journalists, including the People magazine reporter in The Big Chill. Yes. Uh, so there's uh, <laughs> some uh, symmetry there. Anyway, Norm Eisen, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery, and we will be back with you at the Trump uh, International Hotel sometime soon. I thank two of my favorite journalists and old friends, uh, Mike and Danny, and the program for having me. And thanks, Yahoo, for hosting my Princeling editorial. I'm glad a bunch of people read it. Many thanks to Norm Eisen and Hunter Walker for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And SiriusXM subscribers, you can now listen to Skullduggery on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 12 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. So check it out. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.